you should try organic. What about becoming vegan? Don't eat any carbs. How about low carb? Paleo, keto, don't eat anything white. Don't forget about the dirty dozen. You eat too little. You eat too much. Don't forget to fast before you work out. I do intermittent fasting. Don't eat after six o'clock. Oh my God, sugar? Every day, I'm inundated with opinions. And you know what they say about opinions. Please, don't be foodish. Join me, Amy Goldsmith, owner of Kinder Nutrition and Wellness and Dietitian for 20 years, as I talk evidence-based nutrition to get the disorder out of eating. I can't wait to serve you. Okay. Hi, everybody. It's Amy, and we are back with Don't Be Foodish. I have Kim Coppola here with me as well, and we are so excited to introduce our guest, Nushin Kui. Welcome. Hi. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We are so glad to have you. Hey, Kim, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm excited to have another therapist, you know, on the podcast today. <laughs> I'm definitely outnumbered, but in great company. So therapists are definitely my, um, one of my favorite providers. Thank you for being here. (laughs) So I figured we would kind of jump right in today. Um, uh, Just as a little background for people, um, Kindred Nutrition has worked with Empowering You quite often. um, And that is Nushin's company where she has um, additional therapists who all specialize in eating disorders. So we've been very fortunate to collaborate um, with mutual patients. And, you know, one of the things that I love about collaboration is like when you hit that sweet spot and you found someone who is kind of like-minded and, you know, uh, provides kind of similar care. So, you know, before we even move forward, I want to thank you for that, Nushin. I think you do a great job and you've modeled such a wonderful office with your, everybody who works underneath you. So thank you for that. No, oh, thank you so much, Amy. I, I agree. I think it can be hard to find professionals that like, as you said, are like-minded. And one of the things I really appreciated about working with Amy and um, with, I know that there's been other dietitians I've worked with there as well, is there we can work well together. We agree. We're more of a team where I think sometimes it's, it's it can be hard to align with the same um, beliefs and recommendations around cases, which I think is going to be a little bit of what we talk about today with your topic. Yes, absolutely. So let's dive right in. So you have a specialty in eating disorders. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to kind of specialize in that? And if you feel like you have a certain therapeutic style? Yeah, sure. So actually working with eating disorders fell in my lap. Um, I was working at a psych hospital post my uh, master's degree inpatient, which is it's it's pretty pretty rough work, um, specifically at the adolescent level, uh, which you know gave me a really good framework for being able to handle um, self injury and suicidality, just really extreme depression, et cetera, which we do see a lot in our clients. And so I'm very very thankful for that experience, but. Um, a great colleague of mine came to me and said, hey, like there's this position open at this eating disorder treatment center. 
are you open to it? And I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> and, um, and there were other reasons I wanted to leave. I loved the care, but there's just a lot going on. But so I said, you know what, let's do it. I, I, I don't know much, but it could be a great learning experience. And so I started off um, at this treatment center. And then I was there for five years and ended up being the team leader for their intensive outpatient program and really, really learned so much. And I think one of the things I love about working with this population is that, I mean, the mostly women that I work with, they're just so incredibly intelligent and passionate and just so caring and they give so much to others. Um, but then there's this part of them that just takes so much away from them. So being able to have this specialty, I think has been really rewarding to the women and, and to the men and anyone that I've worked with. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard. And so it's something I enjoy. I love, I could never see myself doing anything differently now. Um, and yes, I, so I went for my certified eating disorder specialty through the International Association for Eating Disorder Professionals um, several years ago, actually it was pre-pandemic. And then um, I also have the supervisory requirement as well for that. Um, so I can supervise those that are seeking out their, their seeds and then um, I'm also licensed to supervise um, licensed graduate professionals in the um, state of Maryland too. So it's nice to be able to like dabble into other parts as well as the the one on one patient care. Did I answer your question, Amy? This is what I you, do. <laughs> you did. You did. And I, I mean, I think you brought up great points. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think you know when I'm listening, I think it's awesome. I mean, you took a, a chance, right? Mm -hmm. Like, which is what we're always really trying to kind of model and normalize for our patients, right? And you have the confidence and the grit. And I love how you said, you know, and I learned a lot, right? I think that's one of the things that I really like the most about this profession is like, if you're open to it and you're, you know, you have humility and you let your ego go, you learn something every single day because we meet with patients who are all different. So I just think, you know, that's wonderful. And I mean, you hit the nail on the head for balance, you have to have kind of um, additional focuses. So I, I totally agree with you. I love the fact that not only do you um, work individually with patients and, and families, but you also do the supervisory work and that sort of thing. I know um, it's just so nice to do a little bit of something else to have that balance. Mm -hmm. So how would you, I mean, and this is, this is a, a difficult question, I think, but if you had to kind of describe your therapeutic style or if you don't really feel comfortable describing your own, what type of therapeutic style do you think a uh, eating disorder therapist like needs to kind of feel confident with? Oh, I'm so happy to share my therapeutic style. I think it's so important um, when building a relationship with your clients that we mesh with one another. I actually uh, have this in my psychology today profile and on our website is that I think that finding a therapist is like buying a pair of shoes. Sometimes we have to try on different sizes and styles before we find the right fit. And I wish I could like trademark that somehow, but I don't know how <laughs> a lot of money, but I, I really, I, it really, um, it's just so important to me. So I would say, and, and I think a lot of my colleagues would say too, is that my style is very empathic, which is absolutely needed when working with this profession, a hundred percent. But also I can be very kind of like straightforward when needed. Um, 
you have to have a balance of both when working with the eating disorder population. I think that if you're too much on one side or the other, it's going to be really, really hard to find a good balance with your clients. Um, obviously, the empathy helps so much in your clients feeling seen and feeling heard and feeling like you care about them because we do, we really, really care about our clients. I mean, I cry all the time with my clients. I mean, whenever, when they're in pain, I can feel that pain from them. And like, we're human. So you feel that tear and you're like, oh, I should stop the tear. And like, no, I shouldn't stop the tear. I want them to see that this is really power, a really powerful relationship. Um, and it allows them to feel trust um, and really to be, again, to feel seen and heard because they don't feel that a lot and maybe have never felt that in their lives. Um, but then the kind of straightforwardness is really necessary because eating disorders are really, really sneaky. They want to hide. They want to, you know, get away with whatever they can. Um, and so when I see, you know, I feel like they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes or I know there's that saying something like that. Um, I, I will call my clients out when I feel like we have the relationship where I'm able to, right? Like, if it's the first or second session, I'm not going to be like, well, you just said, and I'm really curious about it, it. It might be, you know, over time, like, hey, like we've talked about this one part of your life that you really want to shift. And every time we talk about it, we come up with ideas and why might this be happening and what could be causing things to be this way, yet you're not making those shifts. What's going on? Like, let's talk about what's getting in the way. But even to the more extreme of, you know, where and and this is going to kind of go along with what we're talking about today um is we have families that just can't hear it don't want to hear it because they're possibly too their their lens is too colored by their own belief system and so it can be really really hard to have some discussions when it comes to you know these are the things that need to happen and the changes that need to be made um but I, I do truly feel, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but you know, I think that I, I do have a good balance in the empathy and the you know straightforwardness. But I also, um, I I want to be real with my clients. Like I want them to see me for who I am. Like I laugh, I drop the f bomb. Like we're we're silly together too. And and you know, if they come in for a hug at the end of the session, I return that hug. Where I think maybe more um, old school therapists might not do that, right? It's it's nice to be a part of like the newer um, newer school of therapists where you know we can be real with them as well. Um, when it comes to more of like a like what approaches do I use? Um, <laughs> I always respond with it doesn't matter what approach I use because if a person does not feel comfortable with me in the room. They don't care whether I have 10, 15 years under my belt or I have the certification or, or you know, been doing the DBT and the CBT and the EFT. And it, if they don't want to be there with me, if they don't trust me, then it doesn't matter. So, but I mean, yes, I am, CBT is what's most useful with eating disorders and I dabble a little DBT in there. So for those that are listening, CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. And there are so many other things that I think we do, but in the end, I think it's just, you know, walking the path along with your clients and helping them heal. I really like what you said about it's such a delicate dance, right? And like validating them and supporting them and meeting them where they're at. Mm -hmm. And yet they're there because something isn't working for them. So you do have to find that other side of things where you are direct and assertive and like, Hey, like, I really care about you, but like, something's got to change. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is honestly why I like this. Like, I love what we do. And as, um, working as therapists, cause that for me is like where I'm allowed to be creative. Um, right. I'm not artistic. I can't like do that kind of stuff, but I like <laughs> to think I'm creative and, um, how I support clients, but also challenge them and confront them. Mm-hmm. But I, I totally agree. You have to have that foundation of safety or trust or else, you know, yeah, you're not really going to get anywhere anyways. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. And I like how you say the new therapy versus old therapy that like really resonated with me. Um, and, and it actually made me think a little bit about, you know, sometimes when we're doing family work, um, and we have family, you know, sessions or family meetings. Sometimes I wonder if a family member has experienced um, kind of more of the like old therapy in the past. And like this new therapy is a little bit, um, I don't necessarily know if it's confusing, but it's just, it's new, it's a change. Um, so I like how you explain that because I do think with eating disorders, much like addiction, right? Like if we keep doing the same thing every day, we will eventually die, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's life or death with eating disorders. And I hate to be so blunt, but that is the, the truth of it, right? Um, and so kind of having that rapport and safety is so important, but then, you know, being able to work on the, the action oriented things or calling out, it is so important. I think that's why I enjoy working with both of you so much um, because it helps out with the clinical side too. Mm-hmm. Um, I can contact both of you at any time and say, hey, we're really, really stuck. And I think we have to kind of do some behavioral work with this. Can you help? And I just love that collaboration. Okay, so we talked about a, a little bit about um, that interaction with empathy um, and then calling out. I often think of eating disorders as an abusive relationship. Um, and with an abusive relationship, you know, oftentimes it requires action to feel safe. Um, we already know that you both create a very safe space um, for your patients. How do you hold them accountable to do the work outside of your office? I think that's something I struggle with on the nutrition side is we have such great meetings, but it's outside of the office where we have that difficulty um, on the action side of things. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's a really great question. Um, And it makes me think of the two things that I think are really, really important in um, recovery and making progress and it's insight and motivation. I tell my clients all the time, no matter how sick you are, no matter how long you've had your eating disorder for, no matter how old you are, as long as you have the insight that this is fucked up and I don't want to do this anymore, and the motivation that I need to get better, this is how this is hurting me and the people around me, then you will get better. Now, does that mean you'll get better in outpatient? Not necessarily. You might need more treatment, but you will get better. When I have people that come and they're like, meh, I don't want to get better. I don't think this is a problem. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? I'm more than happy to walk along this path with you. But if you're like starting to veer off on a different side of the road, And then there's like cars coming, like there's nothing that I can do there. So when it comes to clients acting on the things that we've talked about in session or learned in session, 
I'm not like super straight, like CBT, where it's like, and this is our homework for today. And this is what you're going to work on. And then in the next session, okay, let's talk about our homework. That's a very straight CBT approach. Depending on the client, I'm like, hey, what do you want to work on between today and the next time we meet? And they might say, well, let's work on this. Okay, well, let's make it a tangible goal, right? If someone's like, well, I really want to, um, you know, increase the amount of times I eat challenging foods. Well, if you're not challenging yourself at all, the goal of five times a week is, is it, it's just going to set you up. It's going to set anybody up. Then you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel guilty, shame. And then the eating disorder will take advantage of that and cause you to spiral. So, okay, well, let's look at one time. Let's try one time a week. And then, you know, if they don't do their homework, if we come to the next session, it's like, yeah, I wasn't able to do it. Oh, well, let's talk about what happened. Like, did you forget? Because I forget homework all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm in my own therapy. I think as therapists, we all should be, we should have a relationship with a therapist to make sure that we're also taking care of ourselves. And there have been times I'm like, nope, I forgot because life just gets in the way. Or is it avoidance, right? Like, did you, are you purposely avoiding this and why? And let's talk about it. Now, if it's like continued avoidance, right, then that becomes a therapeutic issue and we talk about, you know, what's going on. So that's when you kind of go to that more of the straightforward side of the approach Like we've talked about you making these changes, what's going on, let's talk about maybe, maybe we're, we're moving too fast, um, maybe we need to slow down a bit. Um, so keeping my clients accountable, I think, you know, we can only do so much as clinicians um, because we're only with them for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour a week when they have the rest of the world, the rest of the time. And it's reminding them of that saying, hey, like we do the work only for a really, really short period of time in here. It's up to you to do the work on the outside and who can help keep you accountable if you're having a hard time. So like, this is the one thing you really want to do and you haven't done it. Is there anyone that we can text right now, right? Like, hey, can you text your bestie and say, look, I want to go out to dinner to Kava tonight because it's delicious and I want their calamari. And can she help keep you accountable? Um, or is it, you know, like I have my gym buddy that doesn't know that I have an unhealthy relationship with exercise. I need to let them know that I can't work out every day with them anymore. And how difficult might that be for me to share that information? Um so there, there are a few different ways of doing it, but I think in the end, as I said, that insight and the motivation is huge. And if that's not there, then the work outside of the sessions is going to be even more difficult to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's where I start. I really appreciate what you're saying because that's where I start to use some motivational interviewing and like rolling with their resistance, right? Like, okay, so like you want to keep restricting and all that, like, oh, you want to still live at home in your parents' basement for the rest of your life? Because if you keep doing that, you're not going to be able to get a job and be independent or have relationships. So like, okay, that's fine. And I'll meet you where you're at. Yeah. But I just want to let you know that this is kind of like what like the future has in store for you. And not that I'm trying to be pessimistic, but I'm trying to like shake them of like, hey, like, I've seen this happen to other people. I know that it really happens. Like I'm not just blowing smoke out of your ass, but mm -hmm. like something you got to change or like, this is kind of what you have going for you. Or you're just, you know, in your thirties, forties, and you're just like really unhappy in your relationship with food. And like, I don't want that for people either. Um, mm -hmm. cause it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so I really appreciate Nushin what you're saying about motivation and insight and, I think too, part, for me personally, it's like, it's that balance and that delicate dance and just trusting that like, they're going to end up in recovery and remission. Um, you know, that I have the tools as a therapist and I have the skill set, and then I'm hopefully going to be able to like guide them into recovery. 
Mm-hmm. I think trusting the team is so important. I mean, that's one of the great things about working in this field is that we get to collaborate with dietitians. We get to collaborate maybe with a family therapist, with psychiatrists, with medical doctors, pediatricians. Um, and that's what at least keeps this field less isolating, um, but it also allows us to bounce ideas off of each other and then go to the client and say, listen, like, we all think this needs to happen. Do you trust us? And if you don't trust us, again, that's another another you know, therapeutic issue, but it's having them know that you know we, we are all on their side and we want them to make these shifts and want to help them make these shifts and how important that is for them and their life and the goals that they have for themselves. But it, it can be really tough. Like the motivational interviewing is, is a wonderful technique and it can be so powerful. But then when you have those, the, the ones that don't have that insight, when they're like, no, I'm fine. I can live my life this way. It'll be okay. You know, that's when one, it's heartbreaking to hear that. Cause you're like, oh my gosh, like you just wish you could like push a button and, and make it all go away. Um, but realistically, obviously we can't. Yeah. And, and I think you make both make a really good point. People may be listening here and um, feel and understand that like, yes, people can have an eating disorder for a lifetime, right? I mean, you know, we talked about being life or death and it doesn't necessarily mean that like if you utilize eating disorder symptoms, you're gonna die within the next couple of weeks or the months, but it certainly um, decreases you know, your quality of life, your quality of life, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and your mortality rate increases, um, with the damage to the organs, um, you know, and, and all those sorts of things. And I just, you know, I think it's important for people to know, you know, I do get, we do get referrals for many, many people, um, between the ages of 50. I do have a patient right now who is 75 years old, who has been struggling with this for 30 to 40 years, you know, and in addition with having an eating disorder, they have had a bout of breast cancer, or they have, you know, gotten diagnosed with like um, an autoimmune disorder and that sort of thing. And, you know, from a clinical perspective, I can't help to think, you know, when we're abusing our body, does that decrease our immune system? And, you know, is that why, um, some of my patients suffer so much from all of these comorbidities. I just, you know, it, it's really important to understand that eating disorders don't just lie with young adults. It is, mm-hmm. you know, we do see that older um, population as well. Oh yeah. Um, and, that, and that's what I was thinking about. Um, I have one that finally went into inpatient treatment and she's probably has had her eating disorder for at least 50 years. And Mm -hmm. like, I've been working with her for over a year to get her there. And it just like knowing that she's there now, like, it's just amazing. And I know it's not going to be easy for her. And it's a long journey. I mean, just because you go inpatient doesn't mean the eating disorder goes away, right? There's inpatient and partial and IOP and outpatient and continuing to take care of yourself and do these things. But it's, it's, I think, when cases like that are able to finally go and take care of themselves, it's like one of the most rewarding things. It's that. And then it's also the ones that discharge after many, many years of working together ah. and, both and like how different, I mean, Kate just told me, um, one of my associates told me about a case that she had 
she's had for several years now. And they, they discharged on a wonderful note yesterday and how happy they were. And they cried together. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. It just makes <laughs> you so happy and like, just feel so good. We make such an impact on people's lives. And I, it just, it's so humbling, you know, it's so incredibly humbling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like, I mean, it is a long journey and I think, you know, I, I do think that's an important piece of being a a great provider in the eating disorder world is like really being able to accept that it's a long journey and there's knots and turns and twists in the road, right? Yeah. And you know, you're always gonna have to tweak and um, you know, change your path. But I mean, I agree with you. The the motivation, the the trust, I mean, so, so important. And you know. The interesting thing about the trust is, you know, we're, we're almost dealing with like two sides of someone, right? The, the eating disorder self and the non-eating disorder self. So I will often have patients like when they're in my office and they, they have that um, ability to, um, you know, pull the rational and the irrational, they'll say, I trust you, Amy, but my eating disorder doesn't trust the thing you're saying. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, it's such a neat thing when you hear, when you hear things like that. And then when they're able to even acknowledge like, wow, like I trust you, but this abusive relationship is like this abusive person is telling me like, don't trust the thing she says, don't trust the thing she says, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think the other, uh, the other kind of complicated thing about this is, um, you know, the, the family structure, right? Um, eating disorders are very pervasive. They affect the entire family. Um, and we understand that. I think we have compassion for our patients. And I think, you know, the three of us on here, we've worked together enough. I think we all have lots of compassion for the family too, right? So, I always have experiences where like parents might come in and apologize to me. Like, I'm so sorry that so-and-so was mad at you or yelled at you. And I tell the parents, Hey, that's a compliment to me. If they feel safe to show me their emotions, do it. I mean, it allows me to understand how passionately they feel, you know, that nobody has to apologize to me for things like that. There's also sometimes, you know, it's a little bit weird working with a dietitian, right? Like I try to direct a family to, you know, feed their child differently. Um, And, you know, there are some families who, you know, that doesn't feel great. And I I totally understand that. Um, And it's a kind of a weird, a weird dance, right? Because if, you know, a family member or a loved one is um, trying to change the way they feed someone, but they don't necessarily believe it, that eating disorder will latch onto that and say, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, mom or dad or boyfriend or husband, or they just do not trust this particular person. And it absolutely corrupts care. I mean, what do you all think about that? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, listeners can't see me shake my oh. head, right? Like I totally agree. I think it's so complicated Um, because I think this is also where parents or caregiver, their relationship with food can come into play. Um, and it can really inhibit somebody's progress if they have any kind of disordered eating. And I don't say that as a judgment. I just say that as our society has an eating disorder, even though a lot of people don't meet diagnostic criteria for eating disorders, they're absolutely disordered. Um, Mm -hmm. right. So it's like, 
a parent or caregiver's own relationship with food and how it impacts like the presenting patient or client. Tough. It is so it's tough because so you also, hard. they need help too, but they're, yeah, it's, um, I mean, we, we've had, we've had cases where, um, not mine specifically, but where we've had teens where it's like, we're just keeping them while we can till they go to school. Like till they, they mm-hmm. go, like we validate them. They're like, my mom doesn't believe in this process or my dad doesn't believe this process, or these are the things that are going on in the home. And it's like, girl, we're going to just work together to get off to school. Things will hopefully feel better. Then you'll feel much more in control where we know eating disorders are a lot about control. And so when, whether it's the family dynamic that they're coping with, or it's the family's own belief system around food, it's just, it's, and I, I mean, this is one of the most difficult parts I think about the work we do is working with a family that cannot align with the beliefs. And because they're again, colored by their own relationship with food and exercise. Um, But it's like, there's that piece. I think there's the piece where you have like maybe a mom who has her own disordered relationship with food or a dad, or they just like, can't get on the health at every size train or what it's okay for my kid to have dessert every day. Yes. It's okay for your kid to have dessert with every meal. We have to normalize all this. Um, It's there's that part, but then there's also the part where, and you know, Amy and I have had difficulty with where it's like the, they don't, not that they don't believe that their child may have an eating disorder, but they don't believe the severity of it and the recommendations that we make and why they're being made. And I know as a parent myself, I have two young girls and it is so, so hard to raise two girls in, as you said, this eating disordered world, Kim, um, and having them hopefully have a healthy relationship with food and with their bodies. Um, I get it as a parent, you want to protect the shit out of them. Um, you, the, you are their world. And if you have a parent that's like, Meh, I don't believe about what Miss Nushin's saying, like, it's okay. You don't have to have dessert with every meal. It's really not that quote unquote good for you. Why would they then believe us when they have a, their parent that is the world that they trust and that they feel safe with for the most part? I mean, I think a lot of our clients probably do not feel safe and trust their parents as well. Um, but it's, it's tough and I get it. I, and I try to validate parents when I see that struggle, like, I know this is hard and this is where it's important that you're also getting your own support around this. And then 50% of the time they're like, meh, screw you. Like, I don't need my own support. And then you really start to see why there's an eating disorder to begin with when you start to work with some of these families. And so I think that I know myself and my team, we try the best that we can to work with difficult families and we make the recommendations when we can. And but as humans, it can stir a lot up in us as well. And like, it can be really, really hard sometimes I think to keep a straight face when being disrespected by parents too, right? Like kids, kids can yell at me all they want. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's fine. Whatever. Like you said, Amy, they feel safe to, you know, feel their emotions around us. Like I feel when, when my kids yell at me, <laughs> like, Great, yell away. Of course, it makes me a little angry inside. I'm like, they feel safe. This is good. Um, half the time I'm like, please stop yelling at me. Um, but when an adult 
is being that way with you. It is hard. I will never forget. There was when I worked at the treatment center in the beginning of my training, I had an alcoholic father who couldn't like, just could not support his daughter. And it was really hard. And I was trying to you know, set some boundaries. And he was yelling at me red in the face in that therapy room. And I was like, I had to walk out. I was, I left, I went and cried to my supervisor. Um, and maybe I'm kind of veering off topic here, but just kind of showing that it's, it's really difficult. And, um, I know as a therapist, we try our best to, you know, give the recommendations that make sense and hope that the parents trust us too. And when they don't trust us, it's not us, it's them, right? It's not, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not you, it's me, right? It's, it's, there's something there that's getting in the way of them being able to trust us and believe in the process. And that's what I, when I am getting yelled at or when I am feeling frustrated about a case where it's like, why can't you just see how sick your child is? Like, can I just put them in my pocket and like take them to treatment, please? Because that's, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I, I think I, that I, it makes sense what you're saying, it makes sense, right? Because um, as professionals, we try to show up for our clients and help them in the best way that we can. And yet families are out of our control yeah. yet. Like we're there to support the client. So like when there's this big element of be families and their, the way they communicate and their dynamics and it's out of our control, but how do we teach the client to like learn skills to manage that? Um mm -hmm. And yet ultimately it's out of our control. Like it, it's really tough to sit with that because we just want what's best for them and we don't want them to be hurting and in pain. Exactly. It's hard to watch. It yeah. Really and, and is. yeah. And I think it's, you know, as I've gotten older and I've been in, in, you know, this um, career for, you know, almost 25 years, I think something that I'm so grateful for is like being able to, even if I have that reaction, right? Like that fight or flight. So I'm in a sticky situation. Somebody doesn't like what I said. Somebody might be yelling at me or, you know, disagreeing. And, you know, I, and for me, my ears get um, um, hot and my heart rate goes up. Um, you know, that's telltale, right? Um, but I think I feel very lucky that I have learned to be like compassionate about that person, right? Like, okay, something has hit a nerve with this particular person they're feeling uncomfortable, you know, and having that compassion. And I, and I just, I, I just wanted to say that for like any parent that's on here and is kind of listening to this discussion, I don't want you to process it as us saying, it's you, you're the problem. You, you know, I, I'm a parent as well. All of us are parents as well. Yeah. Right. We don't have a, a, a guide, right. Um, eating disorders. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 47 this year. I can tell you that I know about eating disorders because I work in this field. I, the majority of my friends have no clue what I do. I mean, literally, like I have friends who, um, ignorantly, not because they're dumb, just because of ignorance will say like, why do you have to have emergency visits as a dietitian? Like they just have no clue. Right. Um, so I, I just feel like if you're listening to this as a parent, right, we're just trying to discuss the fact that if you have feelings where you do not trust the team, right, or you don't even know what those feelings are, 
that's really why we're recommending that you get the support or the family. It is not, I mean, family therapy sounds terrible, right? I mean, you think about it, it sounds terrible. It's actually very wonderful, right? It's an objective person who can help model appropriate communication and boundaries. There's never a time in family therapy where a therapist will say, and you, Johnny, are the problem, you know, <laughs> and, and Diane, this is what I, you know, it's, that's not the case, right? So I just really feel like anybody who's listening, like when we make recommendations, it's not from a judgment perspective. Mm -mm. It's because we know that there is a little bit of, you know, a crack in the road, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to repair it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you also have, you know, the ability to kind of um, compromise, like what the repair looks like, which I know, you know what I mean? Like within your boundaries, but it is absolutely impossible to move forward with successful treatment if there's anyone in, you know, that tribe that is not on board. I mean, yeah. I think that's you the need point. To have, yeah, you need to have buy-in. Um, and I really appreciate that reframe, Amy, is like, mm -hmm. by no means am I trying to say that like, yeah, families are the problem and it's your fault. I'm stating it from a very non-judgmental, like objective place that like family dynamics impact the members within the family Right. That just is what it is. Right. And you don't have to have an eating disorder for that to occur. No, right. This it's is like any, why everybody, in every family. Yeah. Right. It's like why there's so many people in the world who like dread Thanksgiving and, you know, Hanukkah mm -hmm. and Easter and all that kind of stuff. It is what it is. Right. The holidays. <laughs> I mean, I, it's like it brings out some, I mean, that week of Thanksgiving and the week leading up to like Christmas. And I know Hanukkah is always different, but um, it's like our clients are like on edge. I mean, I'm on edge. Like, I think we're all just like waiting. Um, but, you know, Amy, just to kind of respond to what you said too, I completely agree. And in no way, you know, um, meant to kind of like go down the bashing direction, but there are so many parents that are absolutely lovely and yes. so supportive. And, there, it's so refreshing. And I, whenever we have cases like that, I say to them, I just want to thank you for being yeah. supportive to your child. It's so important that you are hearing us. You're saying, oh, you want us to do family therapy? Great. Give me some recommend. I mean, those cases, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> like, I just, yes. so great. And it makes me feel so happy for the case to the client because I know that they're going to be okay. The boundaries yes. are less intense. I mean, there's still going to be boundaries. Like there's a reason there's something going on. Not, not the family. It doesn't have to be about the family, why the child has an eating disorder, but there's still something going on. Right. And to be able to have the support of the family and the parents, is just amazing. And so, um, but it is, it's, it's tough. And I think it's tough for everybody and just to be able to be a part of that process and hope that they can trust us and the recommend recommendations that we make and, um, I think is really important. Yeah. And I mean, it's also why we as providers, you know, we work with the identifying patient, you know, it, it's really, I feel, and I know that this is a word that people don't really love, but I feel like it's unethical to also take on a family oh, yeah. um, in addition to that, because, you know, it, it, it's just too difficult. So that's also another reason why we may refer out um, just mm -hmm. because from an ethical perspective. So, so speaking of ethics, um, my favorite subject, um, word. <laughs> yes, we've kind of, we've mentioned the fact that like, sometimes our patients just need more. Right. Um, and so 
I know we will recommend that. And I think even, you know, us three will um, kind of meet them where they are and kind of help them transition. But we do get to a point ethically, at least on the clinical side, you know, I can speak to you from the nutrition side where it's really ethical for me to hold on to someone in this level of care um, because then we have this fine line of like, am I enabling this, you know, this path? Um, you know, am I just becoming like laissez-faire about, okay, it is what it is, you know, especially like if there is, um, you know, a lower heart rate or, you know, they're eating lower than 50% of their needs, or they are presenting as dizziness and that sort of thing. So that's a hard conversation for me to have, mm-hmm. um, you know, with parents, um, and, uh, um, a loved one or the patient who is resistant to it. Um, I really value that both of you, um, you know, and a lot of the physicians that I work with really kind of back me up on that. How do you know when to, you know, when this isn't working anymore and when do you have to kind of end that therapeutic care because it's too dangerous to stay in this setting? Mm -hmm. I think this is where having the higher level of care experience for myself is really helpful because I have an idea of, you know, what is appropriate for like partial hospitalization criteria, intensive outpatient, residential, inpatient, et cetera. Now that doesn't mean that if someone comes through my doors and they meet partial criteria that I'm like, nope, sorry, I'm not going to see you. Um, <laughs> I'm honest with them say, Hey, listen, like we've gone through everything. I want you to know, like, this is probably the best direction for you. What do you think? And if they're like, no, no, thanks. I don't want to pull my kid out of school or I need to keep working. Okay. So that's when some of the motivational interviewing comes into play. Like, are you motivated? Do you have the insight? And if they have those two components, like, great, let's work together. When you're going to need to see a dietitian, you're going to need to see your doctor. And I think that's for me, as a therapist, as if I have a dietitian that I feel like, like you, Amy, that I know will see me and we are on the same page, I feel really good about working on a case like that and a lower level of care that they're appropriate for. Um, and then I also, I think the dietitians, I mean, not that I, I don't know kind of like from a medical space what they need, but I think, you know, as dietitians, you guys have a bit more of that training. Um, you know, I'll say, look, you need to see your pediatrician or, you know, your physician. And I really look at that medical provider to kind of be more of that guide. Now, the problem is, I don't think that there is a lot of eating disorder training in the medical, in the past, in the medical community. I think that that is changing and shifting. I know there have been some things that have been passed on in Capitol Hill, but um, it's still, it's, it's that, I think the medical component for me tends to be the most frustrating part because we don't have a lot of physicians. I mean, Amy mm-hmm. says I've got a few, I think I have one or two where I'm like, oh, you're, you can see this person. I know they will give it to me straight and give it to you straight. And that's what's necessary. But when we have one that's like, oh, your heart rate's 40, you're fine. You're a runner. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm like, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, well, you're purging every day. It's fine that your EKG is abnormal. I'm like, but that, that doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, but when it comes to like, where do we kind of draw the line? I think for me, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, there isn't a very straightforward answer to that. I think it's again, like, where is the client? Are they making small, is, are they making small progress? Right. If they're making small progress, the dietitian, I feel like, okay, this is okay. 
then we can keep doing this as long as they're being medically monitored and things are improving. Now, when they're in a space where yet the, you know, they're not improving medically, right? They're not hitting those goals. It's about having these conversations. If it's an adolescent, obviously bring the family in for more of these discussions or, you know, referring out to a family therapist if that's more of the issue. Um, but it's having more of these direct conversations with the medical doctors as well. Like what, do you feel like this client's appropriate for outpatient care? Yes, I do. Are you sure? Because these are kind of the things that we're seeing. And then if myself as a clinician and if the dietitian, if we're like, we still don't feel good about it, I might then refer to more of an eating disorder doctor if they're still like, no, like we don't want to go into treatment. This isn't happening. Okay. Well, you need to be seeing somebody different than for the medical piece, because I, I'm glad that you trust your physician, but for me being in this field, I need you to get a different opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are cases where it's like, it's just not working and it doesn't feel ethical. It's like, I can't keep working with someone if I'm terrified that they are going to pass out and hit their head. And that just doesn't feel good to me. And so it's again, making sure, okay, well then you're going to have to see your doctor every single week. And if the doctor still is okay, and they're willing to sign off saying that they are liable for anything that happens. Again, it's just really case by case for me. I think it's very, very rare. I would say over the time, I mean, I've been working in the eating disorder field since I think 2010. So like, was that 23 years, which is, is that right? No, 13. Oh my gosh. 13 13 years. Excuse my math. As I get older, like that in my math, my capacity for math decreases. Uh, (laughs) And I, I think I can think of off the top of my head, maybe less than five cases where I've really had to discharge. Cause it's like, this is what needs to happen. You you're not willing to do it. The, and we don't just say sayonara. We say, these are referrals. You can go yes. to this place and get a, 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 an assessment to this place and get an assessment. And so it's not, and that is because ultimately that is our recommendation. And they aren't willing to follow it through. And so it just gets to a point where when I start to feel that uneasy feeling, whenever I meet with the client, I'm like, and I, we, I worry so much about some people and Amy and I had a case recently where it was, I mean, every day and we were texting like every day or calling mm-hmm. or whatever we were doing, like, what are we going to do? Something needs to change. This needs to happen. And we weren't getting, thankfully they eventually went into treatment, but it was really hard to get that buy-in from them. Um, and it just doesn't feel good to wake up and worry that is my client alive today? You know, that's yeah. not, that's when it's unethical, right? Yeah. Yep. So that's, odd. yeah. And, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Like I think, you know, trusting ourselves and, you know, knowing like when it's at that space, I feel like I'm a little bit luckier on the like clinical side. Cause I do have, although I like everybody to think in gray, I do have a couple, you know, black, white things that I can really use as information and evidence. So it makes it a little bit easier on my side. I definitely think it's a little bit uh, or a lot more difficult on your side. But I think, you know, the, the other point here is that we would, you know, a provider will always recommend a transition to care. They will never leave you high and dry. And at the same time, and I just had this conversation with a, um, a patient yesterday, we cannot work harder than them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We cannot do that. Um, you know, it, it never prevails to be the magic bullet, right? <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, so I, I just think it's so important to be able to accept that. It's important and it's difficult mm-hmm. as providers. 
But I think that's a really good point, Amy, working harder. And also because that leads to burnout. And when you start mm-hmm. to feel that with your, your cases, it's trying to understand what is going on with this case and can anything change? And that might mean maybe they need a new therapist. And I am more than happy to refer you to someone that may be a better fit for you, that may be willing to work with you in the space that you're in. But right. I, as a clinician and as a human that cares about you and your life, just can't do this anymore. Um, so it could be, hey, you could try some of these outpatient providers if that's what you're looking for, or you could look into these higher levels of care. But it is, it's trusting ourselves and um, working hard. Yes, when we're working harder, I think that's always an indicator. And I think um, some of my associates can co- totally agree with that. Like, I just feel like I'm working so much harder. And it's like, well, that's telling you something. Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Just letting the clients know that too. Say, listen, mm-hmm. like, like, I'm giving 70 and you're giving 30. And, and why is that? What's going on here? Like, it's always a clinical issue, right? Whenever mm-hmm. we feel a certain way with our clients, it's so important as therapists that we are processing that with them in an appropriate way, because that relationship and that dynamic is what they can take into the outside world and heal some of those other relationships that they have. Because if they're, if I'm feeling 70, 30 in our relationship, I'm sure that there are other people in their lives that are also feeling that 70, 30. I agree. And I think that kind of rounds everything back to your therapeutic style, right? That combination of being empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. And being transparent, right? Every single thing that we've talked about today really kind of touched on that empathy, being transparent, building that rapport. Um, And I know we talked about a lot and I think we have so much more to talk about. So I would say maybe we can kind of look at this as part one and invite you back. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know we've taken so much of your time today. Oh so gosh, that's fine. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, we love working with you and everybody who's listening, stay tuned. We will have Nushin back shortly. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Amy. See ya. Talk soon. Thank you everyone for joining us for our favorite hour of the day. We hope you enjoyed our latest podcast from Don't Be Foodish and we can't wait for you to hear our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please help us by rating and reviewing. This allows others who have similar interests to find us. We'd also love for you to follow us and when you do that, you will be getting the episodes before they are broadcasted on our social media. If you have something that you are really interested in hearing or you'd like us to talk about, please feel free to give us a call at 301-580-0008. We will listen to your messages and hopefully be able to integrate that subject into one of our podcasts this year. Thanks so much and we'll talk with you soon.